I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. You're listening to Violero by the artist Lucy Bella, sung in the Creole language of the West African nation of Cabo Verde. Thousands of Cabo Verdean Americans have made their home in greater Boston, bringing with them the indigenous language of their ancestral homeland. And now through the efforts of a local retired teacher and writer, Cabo Verdean Creole has been captured in a dictionary, the formalization of a language that has been passed down mostly orally. Joining me now, Manuel de Luz Gonzalves, founder and owner of Millie Mila Incorporated in Roxbury, and author of two Capo Verdean Creole dictionaries. Hi, Manuel. Hi. Also with me, Abel Jesse Amato, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Simmons University. Welcome, Abel. Hello, Kelly. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, I'm glad to have both of you. And I want to start with you, uh, Professor, because um, let's put a little context here. Probably people have heard folks say, wow, there seems to be a number of Capo Verdeans in Boston. Um, when did they first start immigrating to Boston? That is a great question. So um, to unpack that question, we may want to make a distinction between individual migration and mass migration. You can find um, individual migration as early as the revolutionary uh, period. In fact, there are some records uh, from the American Revolution that show uh, people um, of Cabo Verde descent who participate in the struggle. You also find people of Cabo Verde descent who participated during civil war. However, mass migration from Cabo Verde is something that peaks in late 19th century and early 20th century. This is when we find uh, thousands of people crossing the Atlantic um, into New England. I want to emphasize that um, the case of Cabo Verdean migration to the United States, it's rather unique in the sense that this is the first time in U.S. history that you find um, voluntary migration from Africa, unlike, our, uh, our, um, unlike other groups who came to the United States through slave trade. Cabo Verdeans um, uh, did migrate um, through um, the voluntary uh, means, if you will. Now, there are some... Um... Not it's not even a dispute. It's some fuzziness around how many people uh, who would uh, claim that heritage live in Boston now. You say it's hard to calculate, but it's less than fifteen thousand. If we look at the at the um, stats provided by the government, and these stats tend to focus more on people who are born in Cabo Verde. Um, um, according to the city of Boston, that number is around fifteen thousand dollars in the. Uh, I'm sorry, fifteen thousand people in the um, twenty fourteen um, uh, statistical uh, data. However, as you know, uh, Cabo Verdes have been in the United States for many decades. Um, um, no, the number is way higher. 
But um, I want to to mention that when it comes to to the issue of numbers of Cabo Verdeans in the United States, there is a little bit of other controversy. Um, you know, we often hear that there are half a million Cabo Verdeans in the United States, or that the Cabo Verdeans um, in the United States um, are numerically superior than Cabo Verdeans in the United in Cabo Verde. So these are some. Um, a demographic myths that needs to be dismantled. Yes, we do find a considerable diaspora of Cabo Verdeans in the United States and in Boston particularly, but however, that number, it's not what is typically um, uh, shared, even within academic and policy circles. Um, um, it is important to keep in mind that the number is, is often um, in inflated. In fact, uh, there is a wonderful study by a Cabo Verdean American, uh, Laura uh, Pierce Hester, and she did a wonderful job in tracing the beginning of this demographic and numerical myth. You know, according to her, according to her research, this is something that can be found in the early 1970s when Cabo Verdean Americans were going through a process of ethnic revival. I just wanted to set the historical context. And for people who are listening, thinking, I thought it was Cape Verdean. Um, just so you know, that got changed in 2013. The name officially changed to Cabo Verde. Verde. So that's why we are uh, pronouncing it that way now. And so people will have an understanding. And the point of this conversation, Emmanuel, I'm going over to you now, uh, Manuel Deleuze, um, Gonsalves, is that you have been diligently working to capture what's been an oral tradition of the indigenous language of Creole on the island um, in dictionaries. I want to point out that this is the second dictionary you worked on. The first was in 2016 when you published a, a, a dictionary that was Capo Verdean to English, and now you're doing English to Capo Verdean. But for all of my listeners, why is it important to capture this indigenous language in a dictionary? Well, as you said, it was originally an oral language. And of course, you know, all this African tradition um, stories uh, have been um, in the oral tradition for a long time. But um, because of the other language, Portuguese, uh, as one of the languages of Kefir. But again, in the Constitution, the two languages are sacred for Kefirians, and um, Creole, of course, is the native language of all Kefirians, and Portuguese, unfortunately, still is taught in schools as the first language, which should be the second language, uh, because uh, you know the language of Kefirians, the language of the people, is really Creole or Cape Verdean Creole, or Cabo Verdean. And I'm having trouble with this Cabo Verdean thing. It says, uh, in, in, in English, you would say Cape Verdean. Uh, it sounds better than Cabo Verdean, but um, um, it, it's something that is uh, there for, for people to know in unanimity concerning Cabo Verdean or Cape Verdean. I just want to be clear so that people can, can follow the history and the context that the reason that one of the that the first official language, as you've said, the first national language is Portuguese because of colonization. So when the Portuguese came, they, um, you know, colonized the area. Um, and so 
they imposed the language on the people who were living there. And in fact, when you were growing up, Manuel, you were forbidden to speak Creole. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, I, I studied in a seminary, and um, everything was in Portuguese, you know, the, the instructions, the social life, and um, and as you start a school at seven, eight years old, you learn Creole at home. And then when you go to school, your first language is Creole, it's not Portuguese. And then uh, when you, in this institution, uh, we were obliged to speak Portuguese without us knowing well how to speak Portuguese. So that was the, the thing that uh, whoever spoke Creole at that time, uh, you would be punished corporally and spiritually. You know, you would send to the chapel to uh, pray Ave Marias and and, uh, and and then also being punished uh, with um, you know physical uh, punishment. So uh, my thing with Creole was is exactly when I came to the United States, I. Um, started to get into bilingual education. I, I was one of the first, uh, along with others, Real Maida, Tom Lopes, to really uh, explore the bilingual education in terms of uh, officializing uh, Creole as one of the living languages in Massachusetts. So uh, in that case, you know, I, you know, I started to to teach in schools, in Boston Public Schools. The first bilingual program was in Portuguese. And then after two years, um, the state of Massachusetts decided to, to have the Cavalian bilingual program in Creole because of the, the kids wouldn't understand or wouldn't function, function well in the Portuguese language. Also, the teachers were Portuguese from the Azores and other, other parts of Portugal not Kavirian teachers. So uh, the struggle was to continue to to have uh, the state reps uh, to have Creole as one of the living languages in Massachusetts, which uh, came to, to be one of the official languages after a long fight and uh, this transition from Portuguese to Creole in the classroom. There are a lot of movements now, Manuel, uh, across the country. Um, people can probably uh, think about some in um, Native American communities to capture language on paper. It's oral, orally passed down language customs that have uh, never been on paper to put to formalize them. Um, and I don't think a lot of people understand why they feel the to, to understand the importance of that for those of you who um, spoke uh, an indigenous language were at some point in your life prevented from speaking it and are now trying to preserve it for history. So for those of us who might wonder why this is so important to you, why is this important to capture this uh, in a dictionary? It is uh, important. I want to start with a quote from uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his language, that goes to his heart. 
So the, the language of the people, uh, it, it's the people's language, it's the language of their heart. All the music, all the traditions, all the folklore, uh, most of the, the, the literature in poetry are in Kaverian. So it, it makes sense. If you have an oral language in the 21st century, now they need to be written for preservation for the posterity. Um, so uh, that's why, you know, it's important to have dictionaries, to have grammars, to have books, to have songs in, in Creole uh, for the preservation of the, of the language. Because, you know, uh, if a language is the soul of a country, of the people, of the culture. And then if it does, if that's not, a, if it's just oral, it needs to be protected uh, in a written form so we can uh, continue on throughout the, the future in more uh, ways that our children of the future would probably learn more better than us because it's written, you know, not just oral, but written. So the importance of writing the, the indigenous or the native language is very important for the posterity, for the history. And then you, you document all the other things, you know, the, the songs, the traditions, the oral poetry, uh, and so on and on, including literature, the basic literature, not just basic literature, but, the, you know, why not having romance? In fact, we have the first romance by Manuel Vega, Ojo d'Agua, and since 1967 or 87, and uh, that's that's a medium for other people. They should have it in schools, by the way, uh, because we don't have much ma ma uh, materials in Creole. So that's the beginning to have something written in uh, in Creole according to. There's no alphabet, alphabet of the end, so that people would adjust to it and would um, have it as a as a your language with that pride, and then in your heart, you know, it's the language of the people. Let me go back to uh, to you, Professor Abel, because um, I think people listening to this conversation might be thinking, okay. Creole in Capo Verdean, but I know that Haitians speak Creole, Jamaicans speak Creole. Is there a difference? Yes, absolutely. So when we use that term Creole, we are essentially talked about um, languages that developed in the last um, 500 years. In essence, these are the languages that resulted from the fusion of two linguistic systems. European linguistic systems and African linguistic systems. So the the fusion of these two different linguistic systems um, uh, led to the development of a completely new um, language, a Creole language. Obviously, uh, depending on the European language we are talking about, you'll find the different types of language. For instance, the Asian Creole is French-based, which means that um, the French language provides the lexical corpus 
but uh, some other West African languages provide the morphosyntactic components of language. When it comes to Jamaican Patois or Jamaican Creole, um, English is the lexifier or the, the provider of vocabulary. In terms of Cabo Verdean, the, the Portuguese language is the lexifier in the sense that it provides most of vocabulary. Um, no, according to some numbers that you find in literature, that number, the percentage of words in Cabo Verdean that derive from Portuguese is somewhere between 85 to 95%. So now that you have, or you're completing, and the, the, the second uh, dictionary, which will be uh, from English to Capo Verdean. Um, explain to me why you needed two. Why why one dictionary couldn't go both ways from English to Capo Verdean and from Capo Verdean to English. Well, it's because of the lack of resources. Um, so I decided to to have one, uh, the first one Creole to to English, because you know. Um, the Kevirian Americans uh, uh, are a major component of the society of, uh, of the Kevirian society, meaning there's more Kevirians uh, outside Kevirs than in Kevir. It's more than a half million, they say, uh, in the United States and uh, and the the diaspora in general. So it made sense to me to. To have this opportunity to uh, have this dictionary as a gift to the Kevin Americans that were uh, they never spoke Creole, and uh, there was an opportunity for them to to have firsthand uh, a Kevin dictionary Creole English. So let me ask both of you a question um, as we. Um come to the end of our conversation, and that is, uh, you're both convinced uh, that some, that a, the dictionary helps to boost the community's self-esteem. So I'd like to hear from each of you about why you think that is so. Manuel, why, why is that so? The people never saw a dictionary, Kevin dictionary, you know, unless for the past uh, few years. Now, we do have a, a Kevin or Cabo Verdean German uh, dictionary, we have a, a, a Creole Kevirian to French, a Creole to Portuguese, and now we have the Creole to English, English to Creole. So it's it's a new life in, in terms of people seeing their language written in so different languages, including Italian and so forth. So it's it's important for for the people in Kevir and then people in the diaspora. Uh, because it, it's something that uh, constitutes now a, a part of the, the history and part of the future. Abel, same question to you. First, I want to commend Manuel Gonzalez for the type of work he's doing. You know, working on dictionary, as you can imagine, it's really a daunting task. Um, uh, going back to your question, I want to emphasize one thing, actually two things. First of all, in its own proportion, Cabo Verdean or Cabo Verdean language or Cabo Verdean Creole, it is is um, a global language. What do I mean by that? It is a language that is spoken and heard in different parts of the world because you do find Cabo Verdean communities spread across the Atlantic world. 
in Brazil, Argentina, um, Canada, US, uh, Western Europe, West Africa, um, Southern Africa. So um, you go to these parts, um, you do find people speaking Creole. Um, and speaking Cabo Verde and Creole, so it is a global language. Though um, um, historically it has been an other language, the the introduction of dictionaries, many of them are being introduced, and Manuel Gonçalves' dictionary is one of them. Will boost the entry of Cabo Verdean in the realms of the written language becomes a, something that can be recorded and recorded in terms of being in in a standardized way of 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 writing the language and i say that because um especially in 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 the united states or in massachusetts in particular since the 1970s you do find a movement towards bilingual education in cabo verdean language uh, obviously if we are going to talk about bilingual education you do need a lot of materials you do need a lot of resources and a dictionary is perhaps a key uh, tool um, I also want to emphasize another interesting movement that is happening, uh, particularly in the city of Boston. Um, um, I believe that the city of Boston these days is adopting a multilingual policy in the sense that key um, um, information from the city are disseminated in different languages including Cabo Verdean. So a dictionary would facilitate, a Cabo Verdean dictionary would facilitate how the city communicates with with the citizens that um, speak Cabo Verdeans and allow them to truly engage in the uh, civic realm and become um, a more uh, participative uh, citizens in, in, um, in the city. Well, we'll leave it there. I thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for your invitation. Manuel de Luz Gonçalves is the founder and owner of Mili Mila Incorporated and author of two Capo Verdean Creole dictionaries. And Abel Jesse Amado is the Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Simmons University. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. We're going out on Sodaje by Cesario Evora, one of Cabo Verde's most famous musicians. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Listen again on Wednesday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Saudade, 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 saudade